Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 20th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at today's weather forecast from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Quiet and cloudy today. Another round of snow possible this weekend. Clouds will hang tough with us for the next several days, with highs topping out in the upper 20s through the weekend. We are watching a weak system that could bring some light snow and minor accumulations to the southern half of eastern Iowa late Saturday into Sunday. Impacts appear low, with the next round with trace amounts up to a few inches of light snow at most, falling mainly south of Highway 20. Sunshine will be hard to come by into the next week. Seasonal temperatures continue for the first half of next week, but a push of colder Arctic air looks to settle in by the end, knocking highs back into the lower 20s and teens. Here are the stories we're following on the front page of The Courier today. Musical lineup named for Fest. Voucher bill vote next week. Waterloo preparing for budget work. And let's begin reading the top-line story, Debt Limit Clash Looming. U.S. Treasury buys time for Biden and GOP on debt limit deal. The story filed by the Associated Press journalist Josh Bolk. Dateline Washington. The U.S. government bumped up against its debt limit Thursday, prompting the Treasury Department to take extraordinary accounting steps to avoid default as friction between President Joe Biden and House Republicans raised concern about whether the U.S. can sidestep an economic crisis. The Treasury Department said in a letter to congressional leaders it had started taking extraordinary measures as the government had run up against its legal borrowing capacity of $31.381 trillion. An artificially imposed cap, the debt ceiling has been increased roughly 80 times since the 1960s. Quote, I respectfully urge Congress to act promptly to protect the full faith and credit of the United States. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrote in a letter, The Treasury Department on Thursday made a series of accounting maneuvers that would put a hold on contributions and investment redemptions for government workers, retirement and health care funds, giving the government enough financial space to handle its day-to-day expenses until roughly June. Markets so far remain relatively calm, given that any threats to the economy would be several months away. Even many worried analysts assume there will be a deal. But this particular moment seems more fraught than past brushes with the debt limit because of the broad differences between Biden and new House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who presides over a restive Republican caucus. Those differences increase the risk that the government could default on its obligations for political reasons. That could rattle financial markets and plunge the world's largest economy into a preventable recession. Biden and McCarthy, a Republican from California, have several months to reach agreement, but years of intensifying partisan hostility have led to a conflicting set of demands that jeopardize the ability of lawmakers to work together. Biden insists on a clean increase to the debt limit so existing financial commitments can be sustained and is refusing to even start talks with Republicans. 
McCarthy is calling for negotiations that he believes will lead to spending cuts. It's unclear how much he wants to trim and whether fellow Republicans would support any deal after a testy start to the new Congress required 15 rounds of voting to elect McCarthy as Speaker. Asked twice on Wednesday if there were evidence that the House Republicans can ensure the government will avert a default, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said it's their constitutional responsibility. She did not say whether the White House saw signs at this stage that a default was out of the question. Quote, we're just not going to negotiate that, she said. They should feel the responsibility, unquote. McCarthy said Biden needs to recognize the political realities that come with a divided government. The speaker equates the debt ceiling to a credit card limit and calls for a level of fiscal restraint that did not occur under President Donald Trump, a Republican who in 2019 signed a bipartisan suspension of the debt ceiling. Quote, why create a crisis over this, McCarthy said this week. I mean, we've got a Republican House, a Democratic Senate. We've got the president there. I think it's arrogance to say, oh, we're not going to negotiate about pretty much anything, and especially when it comes to funding, unquote. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said Thursday in Louisville, Kentucky, that he was unconcerned about the situation because debt ceiling increases are always a rather contentious effort, unquote. Quote, America must never default on its debt, McConnell said. We'll end up in some kind of negotiation with the administration over what are the circumstances or conditions under which the debts are going to be raised, quote. But any deal would also need to pass the Democratic-run Senate. Many Democratic lawmakers are skeptical about the ability to work with Republicans aligned with the Make America Great Again movement started by Trump. The MAGA movement claims that the 2020 election lost by Trump was rigged, a falsehood that contributed to the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Quote, this is not complicated. If the MAGA GOP stops paying our nation's bills, Americans will be the ones to pay the price, said Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York. Quote, political brinkmanship with the debt limit would be a massive hit to local economies, American families, and would be nothing less than an economic crisis at the hands of Republicans, unquote. The debt ceiling was originally a fix made during World War I that enabled bonds to be issued without requiring repeated congressional approvals. But in an era of polarization and rising debt loads, the limit has been transformed into political bludgeon. It does not reflect the actual capacity of the federal government to borrow, simply how much it is legally able to do so without congressional sign-off. A prolonged default could be devastating, with crashing markets and panic-driven layoffs, if confidence evaporated in a cornerstone of the global economy, the U.S. Treasury note. Next, we have a story written by Maria Cooper, Waterloo sets budgeting process and timeline for next fiscal year, Dateline Waterloo. The city of Waterloo is preparing to begin its budgeting process for the fiscal year that begins on July 1st. Bridget Wood, the city's finance manager, 
laid out the details in the City Council work session earlier this week. All cities are required to hold a public hearing and approve a resolution every year showing the proposed maximum tax levy rate. Wood said during the meeting that officials are currently planning to hold the maximum levy rate and bond hearings on February 20th. During that meeting, the city would also adopt resolutions for a final budget publication, adopt a pre-levy resolution, and set a final budget hearing on March 6th. The budget is expected to be approved on that date. Wood said staff, council members, and the general public can submit additional funding requests to the finance department by January 27th. The council will schedule budget work sessions as needed. The city has budgeted $44.5 million in reserves for the current fiscal year, about half of which is property taxes. Waterloo's taxable valuation is increasing by 1.17% to $2.78 billion for fiscal year 2024. Since 2019, the city's property tax levy and the average residential tax bill have been on the rise. Currently, the tax rate is $18.97 per $1,000 of taxable value, and the average bill is $1,653. Maria Cooper also wrote this next story, Experience Waterloo announces My Waterloo Days lineup free admission. Dateline Waterloo. Waterloo's annual community festival is being revamped this year. The headliners for My Waterloo Days, which will be held June 8th through 11th, were announced this week by Experience Waterloo. Three musical acts are featured that gained nationwide popularity in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Along with national headliners, all festivities will be admission-free. And here the courier includes a photograph showing the My Waterloo Days parade as it rolls through downtown Waterloo in 2022. Experience Waterloo's Executive Director, Travis Hall, said getting rid of those costs for attendees is part of an effort to ensure everyone in the community can come out to the event. Quote, we wanted to make sure that this event was meant to celebrate Waterloo and didn't want cost to be a barrier for folks, he said. On June 9th, R&B artist Genuine will perform at 9.30 p.m. on the main stage in Lincoln Park. His top hits include Pony and Differences. Following Genuine will be hip-hop duo Ying Yang Twins at 10.30 p.m. The two are best known for songs like Salt Shaker and Wait, as well as for I Being, featured on a number of Billboard Hip Hop 100 songs. On June 10th, alternative rock band Blessed Union of Souls will perform at 9.30 p.m. on Lincoln Park stage after the fireworks. The band's top songs include I Believe and Hey Leonardo. A full music lineup will be announced in the spring. Along with the main stage in Lincoln Park, there will be an additional stage at Anton's Garden and a downtown teen stage located near Lincoln Park. The My Waterloo Days Parade, kids' bike races, and a talent search will also be part of the festivities. Quote, I'm looking forward to seeing that park swell, as we've got amazing music and entertainment, Hall said. 
I think people are going to look out into a crowd and see a ton of people super excited and super proud of being from Waterloo. That's what I'm looking forward to the most, unquote. This year's event is presented and sponsored by Viridian Credit Union. Hall said sponsorships are a major part of the festival break-in even, as there will be no admission fee. Julie Gage, Viridian Public Relations Strategist, did not disclose the amount being given to My Waterloo Days, but said the company is at the top financial level of sponsors. She said that Viridian has been a longtime sponsor of the festival, but this year is stepping up its contribution. Quote, we're excited to be part of it, she added, noting this is also Experience Waterloo's first year since taking over the event from Main Street Waterloo. Quote, it's going to be an exciting year ahead to see all the changes, unquote. For more information about the event, go online to www.mywaterloodays.com. Next, we have a story that comes from Caleb McCullough of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Voucher bill vote next week. If House, Senate pass private school proposal, it will head to Reynolds. Dateline Des Moines. Iowa legislative leaders expect Governor Kim Reynolds' private school assistance proposal to come to a floor vote early next week in both the House and the Senate. Reynolds, a Republican, announced the bill last Tuesday, and it has dominated the first two weeks of the legislative session. Republicans have fast-tracked it through the lawmaking process in both chambers. Quote, I haven't set an exact time, but I would say early in the week would be the expectation. House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican from New Hartford, said Thursday. House Democratic Leader Jennifer Conforst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, says she expects the bill to go to a floor vote on Monday. If the bill passes through both chambers, it will go to Reynolds' desk to be signed into law. Next week is National School Choice Week, a week of advocacy and events focused on giving parents broader options in education. Grassley maintained confidence that Republicans have the votes to pass the bill this year, a far narrower private school scholarship program last year, failed to gain support of several Republicans in the House, some from rural areas, who were concerned about how a loss of funds would affect schools in their districts. Quote, I don't think I'd be moving a bill along the process if we didn't have that expectation that it will pass, Grassley said. Reynolds's proposal this year would provide parents the option of using $7,598 in taxpayer funds the state's per-pupil K-12 education allotment, to send their child to a private school. The money can be used on tuition, supplies, and other educational expenses. In the first year, the program would be open to all public school students and students starting kindergarten at a private school. Private school students in families making up to 300% of the federal poverty level would also be eligible in the first year. Reynolds' office estimates the program would cost nearly $107 million in that first year. By the time it's fully phased in, the program would be open to all students in public and private schools, regardless of income, and would cost the state $341 million annually, 
according to estimates from Reynolds's office. The state's nonpartisan fiscal agency has not yet analyzed the bill. School districts would get $1,250 in state funding for each student who lives in the district but attends a private school. Schools would also be able to use unspent money in certain categorical funds to increase teacher salaries. Democrats urge pressure. Speaking with reporters Thursday, Democrats urged Iowans opposed to the measure to contact their representatives over the weekend in preparation for the upcoming floor debate. Democrats who are in the minority in both chambers have uniformly opposed the bill as it has gone through committees. Confirst said the bill is unpopular with Iowans. More than half of Iowans opposed Reynolds's narrower proposal in a Des Moines Register Mediacom poll last year. Quote, remind your legislators that we don't work for the governor. We work for constituents, Confirst said. So we're asking Iowans to let them know that and remind them that we are not here to do the governor's bidding. We're here to do the work of the people. The legislation advanced through the Senate Budget Committee Thursday. Committee leaders from the Republican majority combined the two legislative committee steps into one hearing, and the bill passed both steps along party lines. Because the proposal includes new state spending, it was required to pass through both education policy and budget committees. The Republican-led House drafted a new rule that allowed them to skip the budget committee in that chamber. Senator Tim Crayenbrink, Republican from Fort Dodge, who chairs the Senate Budget Committee, said he expects the governor's estimate is a conservative figure and that the program would cost even more. Still, Crayenbrink said he supports the bill and believes it will work within the state budget because of majority Republicans' conservative budgeting practices. The nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency has not analyzed the fiscal impacts of the bill, and Democrats have said they'd like to see those estimates before it goes to a floor vote. Confirst said the agency's fiscal estimate may come Monday. Quote, that's not a lot of time to look over something that's going to be a billion-dollar project over four years, she said. We think that it's only fair when we're spending this much taxpayer money. We should know where it's coming from and how much it's going to impact the rest of the state's budget, unquote. Grassley said he'd like to see the fiscal estimate, but he pointed to the numbers coming out of the governor's office, and he said Republicans have been transparent about the cost of the program. Now let's turn the page to the Cedar Valley section, which begins with a wintry photograph showing a man shoveling snow from a sidewalk. The trees above him are completely encased in snow. The first article on the page is titled, Kings and Queens Club Temporarily Closed and Up for Sale. Story filed by Maria Cooper, Dateline Waterloo. The current owner of the Cedar Valley's only gay bar is looking for someone else to take over. Kings and Queens Club, located at 304 West 4th Street, celebrated New Year's Eve and has been closed since. In a more than 12-minute-long video posted on Facebook shortly after the new year started, owner John Hayes announced the club is up for sale. Hayes bought the club in 2011 and sold it during the pandemic. 
He said in an interview that he redeemed Kings and Queens from the former owner in November and kept it open for a few months. Currently, he does not have the resources to continue operating. Quote, it's been a challenge to reopen and get back to good working order, he said. There was lots of cleanup, money, inventory, supplies, and employees not paid. That's the type of situation I was in, unquote. Hayes said a lot of employees have still not been paid for time worked under the previous owner. The club will not be listed for sale publicly, but rather for sale through Hayes. He said he wants to make sure the building goes to someone who will keep it a safe space for the LGBTQ plus community. He said that if the building is not under contract by April or May, he will probably open it up himself. Quote, one way or another, it will reopen, he said, hell or high water, unquote. Hayes noted there is good local interest in the bar. Since posting the Facebook video, it's gotten almost 20,000 views with almost 300 shares and 200 comments. Quote, the responses I got, it's just overwhelming that many people are concerned about it being closed temporarily, he said. Kings and Queens also supports events such as Cedar Valley Pride Fest and the Cedar AIDS Assistance Program. Quote, it's more than just a bar, he said. It's a community hotspot, unquote. Our next story was written by Andy Malone, Independence Schools Superintendent to Retire After Board Approves Agreement, Dateline Independence. The Board of Education unanimously approved an agreement with Independent Community Schools Superintendent Russ Reiter for early retirement, effective June 30th. Finance Director and Board Secretary Laura Maureen confirmed. The Board met in closed session Wednesday prior to considering the application during a special meeting that allows the superintendent of the last five years to be paid for unused vacation days as part of his three-year rolling contract. Quote, I'm at that point in my life and the opportunity was available, so I decided to take it, said Ryder, 59, in a telephone interview. Quote, I feel I've been able to make a difference in the lives of a lot of students and work with some great staff and administration over the years. In particular, he's taken pride in the financial stability of the district, as well as the building projects undertaken, especially at East and West Elementary Schools. Quote, I'm excited and proud of our academic improvements and the administrative team we've assembled, he added. Ryder's been superintendent since 2018, but his career in education spans 37 years, 17 as the head of a school district. He was the Oskaloosa Community School District Superintendent the previous eight years. Additionally, the board approved a $12,484 agreement with Grundmeyer Leader Services to conduct a search for Ryder's replacement. Officials said the board hopes it can hire the next superintendent by the end of March and that no interim administrator will be needed. Board leadership did not immediately respond to messages seeking comment on Thursday. The Independence Community School District has $24.4 million budget and has three schools, East Elementary School, West Elementary School, and the Junior Senior High School. Its approximate enrollment is 1,397 
kindergarten through 12th grade students. Per its latest school performance profile, the district runs the Early Childhood Center as well. Next is a story filed by Courier staff. French Film Festival returns to the University of Northern Iowa starting Sunday. Dateline Cedar Falls, a hip-hop opera, an animated account of the Spanish Civil War, and a tale about a journalist whose life is upended. These are some of the films streaming as part of the University of Northern Iowa's 2023 French Film Festival. The third annual French Film Festival, hosted by the UNI Department of Languages and Literatures, starts Sunday and continues through February 26th. Six French films, all with English subtitles, will be available to stream virtually over six weeks beginning in late January. A post-screening discussion for each film will be held in a hybrid format with both in-person and virtual options. Quote, the UNI French Film Festival brings alive diverse perspectives of the Francophone world to students, faculty, and friends of UNI. Elizabeth Swanzinger, Associate Professor in Languages and Literatures, said in a news release, quote, It's an opportunity to enjoy imagery from French-speaking places all around the world and the melodic sounds of different voices telling their stories in French. French cinema challenges its audience to reflect on cultural differences and offers new ways of viewing the world that we share, unquote. The festival is made possible due to a grant funding from the FACE Foundation, French-American Cultural Exchange, and support from the UNI French Program Fund. Grant recipients pick from pre-selected films to craft a schedule that is diverse and fits their audiences. Film options run the gamut from classic to contemporary. A range of departments on the UNI campus are involved with the festival, with faculty both in incorporating the films into their classwork and participating as discussion leaders. The Departments of Communication and Media History, the School of Music, and others have collaborated on the event in the past. Quote, it allows the festival to reach more people, said Jim O'Goughlin, Department Head of Languages and Literatures. Participants can work around classes, commutes, and other conflicts to watch at their leisure. Roommates can join in, and it's a great option for winter programming. With the virtual option, we never have to cancel or reschedule due to bad weather, unquote. To see the schedule and to register for the event, visit the festival webpage. Next, Cedar Falls Community Foundation's Priority Fund to Benefit Child Care Facilities, Dateline Cedar Falls. Child care facilities will once again be the focus of the Cedar Falls Community Foundation's Priority Fund in 2023. The foundation raised more than $50,000 for the Children and Families Fund in 2021. In a news release, the foundation noted the community and state continue to be in a child care crisis and not only affects families and children, but businesses and their workforce needs. In partnership, with Child Care Resource and Referral of Northeast Iowa, the foundation distributed $17,300 in grants to local child care providers for new cots and mats, expanded playground space and equipment, a water main break repair 
and much more. Quote, according to the Iowa Women's Foundation, Iowa has lost 33% of its child care businesses over the past five years, the Cedar Falls Foundation said in the release. Quote, it's up to all of us to come together to solve this crisis, and one way we can do that is to provide financial support for equipment, furniture, facilities replacement, repairs or upgrades through the CFCF Children and Families Fund, unquote. Learn and Play Preschool and Daycare was a 2021 and 2022 grant recipient of the Children and Families Fund. The funds helped it to retain and attract new staff by increasing pay. Cedar Valley Preschool and Child Care was a recipient in 2022. Leadership described the funding critical to its and other facilities functioning and giving it the ability to make certain purchases it wouldn't have been able to purchase otherwise, unquote. Donations may be mailed to CFCF at Post Office Box 546, Cedar Falls, Iowa, 50613, or made online at the website through the Donate Portal. The Cedar Falls Community Foundation is a nationally accredited community foundation managed by a board of directors made up of Cedar Falls residents. The Cedar Falls Community Foundation accepts and manages estate gifts and donations to fulfill donor wishes, assisting donors to achieve their charitable legacy. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 20th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Hampton. Jimmy Dean Nordman, age 75, of Hampton, Iowa, and formerly of Clarksville, Iowa, died Wednesday, January 18, 2023, at Rehabilitation Center of Hampton. Jimmy was born on June 6, 1947, in Waverly, Iowa, the son of Orville and Marvell Learhoff Nordman. He was raised in Clarksville and graduated from Clarksville High School and later graduated from Waterloo Barber College. On December 18, 1966, Jimmy was united in marriage to Marilyn Jean Schrage at St. John Lutheran Church in Clarksville. For work, Jimmy farmed near Clarksville. He then went to work as a barber at Kelly Mall Hairstyling before owning and operating hair replacement systems in Cedar Falls, Iowa. He retired in 2012. Jim was a member of St. John Lutheran Church in Clarksville. Jimmy liked gardening, flowers, miniature horses, sheep, cattle, and poultry. He also enjoyed going to swap meets and antique shows. A private family funeral service for Jimmy will be held on Friday, January 20th at Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Waverly with Pastor L. Polito officiating. Interment will follow at Linwood Cemetery in Clarksville. Memorials may be directed to Jimmy's family for later designation, and online condolences may be left at www.kaisercorson.com. Their phone number is area code 319 352 
1187. Now here the courier lists death notices. Verna M. de Timmerman, 85 of Olwine, died Thursday, January 19, 2023, at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. Arrangements are with Jameson Smith's Funeral Home in Olwine. Gail Owen Johnson, 89, of Cedar Falls, died Tuesday, January 17, 2023, at the Cedar Valley Hospice Home. Arrangements for Gail are with Locke Funeral Services at Tower Park. Ricky Camp, 54, of Waterloo, died Tuesday, January 17, 2023, at Unity Point Health Allen Memorial Hospital in Waterloo. And Stephen Glenn Van Cleek, 71, of Hampton, died Tuesday, January 17, 2023, at home. Arrangements for Stephen are with Council Woodley Funeral Home in Hampton. That was all of the obituaries in today's Courier. Now let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot. It's titled, I Think I Know What My Old Man Would Have Said, written by Art Cullen. The Iowa Senate moved swiftly in its first week to advance a bill granting vouchers to families of private school students worth nearly $8,000 per head. It leaves me queasy for the speed and commitment of the Republican legislature and governor and sets off alarm, among others. I'm the product of 16 years of Catholic education, first at St. Mary's and then at the College of St. Thomas in St. Paul. There was never a question with our parents where you would go to school. You could pick any college you want, so long as it was St. Thomas. I'm forever grateful. The good sisters of the presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary taught me how to write. Father Wallen, the journalism don, put me on the path of writing well. Brother John would say the same thing about St. Mary's in Notre Dame. In winter, he's a walking billboard down Lake Avenue for the fighting Irish. Those nuns also taught us that Samuel Gompers and Martin Luther King Jr. were heroes, that the least among us must come first, and that we have a grave responsibility to nurture creation. Republicans were not into funding that back in the day. They couldn't even let the Catholic farm kids ride on the bus as it zoomed past their RFD mailbox. Dad ran for the Iowa legislature on that issue in 1960, and lost. Fair enough. He didn't really want much to do with government school. He certainly would not want his tax dollars going to fund some other religion school, since he was fairly myopic about the one true church. But you should pick up the Reformed kid or the Lutheran kid if she was standing by the side of the road, and you should feed her a hot lunch for a buck a week. That's about all the church-state entanglement they would endure. Dolores's dad worked like a fool, shelling corn so he could pay cash for his brood of nine to attend Catholic school in Algona, and then Catholic colleges. Nobody was, or is, turned away from St. Mary's or Garrigan because they are poor. If you want that education, they will find a way. They always have. So this is not really about fairness. Governor Reynolds would give the voucher to the insurance executive in West Des Moines so his daughter could transfer from Valley to Dowling. That $8,000 
could have gone to a deserving student from Esterville for an Iowa tuition grant at Bella Vista. The tuition grant is a voucher, but Buena Vista is not St. Mary's. It is affiliated with the Presbyterian Church, and that means that the students are required to listen to the campus chaplain a couple times a year if they can't figure out a way to skip out. At St. Thomas, the economics chairman was a Muslim, my human sexuality teacher, who showed videos of different positions. It was the only A I got. Mastering the topic, at least in the abstract, was Jewish. We were required to take theology and philosophy. The logic prof advised us not to trust bishops. College is not the same game as elementary school, where St. Mary's is appropriately about the business of religious formation. Buena Vista produces adults educated in a sort of Judeo-Christian ethical context. There's a big difference. Drake University has no religious affiliation, but is private, and daughter Claire graduated with a debt load that a clarinet major could afford. The state universities have always hated the tuition grant, but never can explain why their athletic departments swallow up so much money or where their foundation money goes. The practical fact is that Iowa colleges are necessary to the state, teacher training, accounting, nursing, in ways that K-12 private schools are not. The tuition grant does not prevent Iowa State University from turning the Scheman Center into an athletic department cocktail club or from the state universities setting record enrollments such that you cannot graduate in four years. Now, St. Mary's kids can ride the bus. Families get a tax credit through the Monsignor Lafferty Fund. They play sports at the public school and can attend free classes at Iowa Central Community College. They get USDA breakfast and lunch subsidies. They get student teachers from Northern Iowa and support services from the Area Education Agency. We've come a long way, baby, and that's far enough. Vouchers are a step too far for K-12. The eagerness and commitment by the Republican Party to pass it this year, when their power has seldom been so consolidated, tells me that some private school corporation, bigger even than the Dubuque Archdiocese, is behind this deal. I think Pat Cullen would smell the same thing through his cloud of cigarette smoke. I once told Mom I could not afford St. Thomas. Quote, get a job, she said. John told me the same thing. Good on them, because here I am and proud of it. I got plenty of help, but never a voucher at St. Mary's. Praise be to God. Our next editorial also comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot, titled, A Miserable Idea. Iowa Republican legislative leaders are attempting to revive capital punishment, banned since 1965, as they have many times throughout the years. This time they believe they have the votes to do it. The death penalty is wrong in our state ethic, and we trust that the Methodists, Catholics, and other churches set on justice with mercy again will take the lead in talking sense to the GOP. We hope that our own legislators will stop and think deeply about their position and realize that there is no need for the death penalty and that it serves no deterrent purpose. The senators proposing the legislation say they are doing so as a deterrent. 
They claim that there have been several murders of child sexual abuse victims in Iowa to keep them quiet. We do not know that that is true. We do know that in states where capital punishment is imposed, they have much higher murder rates than Iowa. Texas and Louisiana immediately come to mind. There is no evidence to suggest that a child rapist will be stopped from murder because he thinks of his own execution. Case in point, a criminology graduate student from Pullman, Washington, is accused of murdering college students in Moscow, Idaho. The suspect's DNA reportedly was found on a knife sheath at the crime scene, and cell phone tracking found him in the vicinity of the murder at the time. Washington State has no death penalty. Idaho does. He maintains his innocence. Many murder convicts on death row have been found innocent with the introduction of new evidence or the revelation of suppressed evidence. Our justice system is good, but not perfect. Prosecutors can and do corrupt evidence. Defendants do not always have good legal counsel. We cannot be certain enough to impose the ultimate sentence, no matter how heinous the offense. When we think we are certain enough, we bungle the executions in cruel and inhumane ways, as Nebraska has, which violate the Constitution. The legislators pushing for a gallows purport to be pro-life. That suggests none of us has the right to take a human life, even if a judge and jury say so. If you believe you are living in New Testament times, then you must shed the old ways and realize that you cannot decide if the killer lives or dies. Jesus, of course, was the ultimate victim of capital punishment and the example of mercy as he proclaimed his forgiveness to the criminals hanging next to him. We're not sure that what the crucifix means in the context of embracing the death penalty. Abortion may be wrong, but at least the state is not directly participating in it, as it does with the gallows. Capital punishment is wrong on a practical and moral level. It is a barbaric response by civilized people to evil acts. In Iowa, murder carries the automatic sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. If it's vengeance you're after, think of the child killer locked up in Fort Madison until he dies. Many prisoners would prefer the electric chair to that. We don't want the blood on our hands for the execution of an innocent man. It happens in Texas, and it will happen in Iowa. Capital punishment solves no problems. It debases us all. Now from the New York Times, opinion by Garrett M. Graff, titled, Trump's Handling of Classified Documents Still Looks Very, Very Bad. The drip, drip of news over the last week about classified files found in President Biden's home and his post-vice presidential office has given Republican members of Congress plenty of fodder for talking points. Quote, where's the raid? Representative Jim Jordan, the newly appointed chair of the House Judiciary Committee, asked in a tweet. The Biden documents investigation was handled for almost two months by a specially chosen U.S. attorney in Illinois. But when new revelations surfaced last week, Merrick Garland, seemingly always happy to give in to bad faith framing, quickly appointed a Republican special counsel to take over the matter. This mirrors the special counsel investigation of Donald Trump's handling of classified presidential files and his activities around the January 6th 
insurrection. The special counsels have given ammunition to pundits, opinion writers, and GOP officials to try to create a false equivalency between the two men. For many, the Biden hullabaloo manifests as a pock on both their houses scandal. He's just like Trump. But a closer, further examination of both the presidency and the historical prosecutions for mishandling classified records actually makes the opposite case. Mr. Biden's mishandling of a limited number of classified files, which, upon discovery, were promptly turned over to the National Archives and proper authorities, should make the reasoning and necessity of prosecuting Mr. Trump all the more clear. Mr. Biden's handling of the issue, especially given the more detailed timeline recently released by the White House, shows how an official who finds misfiled or improperly stored classified files should react. Mr. Biden's behavior stands in sharp contrast to that of Mr. Trump, who spent months fighting with the National Archives over the files and repeatedly assured the Justice Department that he had turned over all the files, even when he was still, apparently knowingly, holding on to scores of classified files. He failed to comply with a legal subpoena, and only then did the FBI move to search his Mar-a-Lago residence. Mr. Biden's scandal so far feels more like an administrative error, with no evidence he even knew the documents were misplaced or in his possession, and when they discovered they were promptly and properly returned to authorities. The government didn't know they were missing, which itself is a bit of a mystery, since classified documents are usually tightly controlled, which is how the National Archives knew Mr. Trump had missing documents in the first place, and Mr. Biden didn't try to hold on to them in the face of a legal process ordering otherwise. In a tweet, the former Missouri state candidate Jason Candler compared Mr. Biden to a shopper who, quote, realized he had mistakenly failed to pay for an item in his cart when he left a store and an alarm went off. Mr. Biden, the analogy goes, went back in and returned the items. By contrast, Mr. Trump apparently stuffed items in his pockets, and when the store alarm sounded, quote, he ran to his car and peeled out, unquote. You could add to the Trump part of the analogy that he led the police on a low-speed pursuit, and then insisted the stolen items were his all along. In the last two decades, we have seen a broad spectrum of wrongdoing, both administrative and criminal, among high-ranking government officials, from Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez bringing classified files home in his briefcase, in part because he forgot the combination to his office safe, to CIA Director David Petraeus turning over notebooks with classified information to his biographer, who was also his lover, and the former National Security Advisor Sandy Berger slipping records into his socks and other clothing to smuggle them out of the National Archives. Hillary Clinton's email scandal in 2016, if you strip away the politics, was somewhere in the middle of the spectrum, trending more toward sloppy office management than national security threat. If we apply the standards of Sandy Berger and David Petraeus, who were both prosecuted, versus 
Alberto Gonzalez and Hillary Clinton, who were not, then Mr. Biden clearly falls on the non-criminal side, whereas Mr. Trump could get multiple criminal charges. Sure, Mr. Biden has made his situation harder because of ongoing revelations and bad communications to the media, but that only worsens his political problem, not any underlying criminal intent, nor does his behavior appear to rise to the legal standards of willful retention or gross negligence. Every sign we have thus far is that Mr. Biden notified the right people at the right time. But for Mr. Trump, there's a second wrinkle. He wasn't a White House official, cabinet officer, or intelligence chief. He was the president. And while Mr. Trump's backers have argued that gives him more leeway to hold on to classified records after his presidency, because he alone had the authority to declassify records and files, an argument that his backers have made in the press, but that his lawyers have carefully avoided making under oath in court, the history of the presidency actually allows that Mr. Trump's role in our government should be an aggravating factor in his case, not a mitigating one. The Presidential Records Act of 1978 was created and passed by Congress precisely to make impossible what Mr. Trump apparently tried to do, absconding with the legacy and records of a presidency that belong rightfully to the nation, not to an individual. Senator Sam Irvin helped drive passage of the legislation and other laws after Watergate to prevent Richard Nixon from destroying the tapes and records of his administration's corruption and mendacity. The history that happens inside the White House belongs to the nation, not to the people who work there. It's a core principle of a country governed by the rule of law, not by men and women. In keeping documents that reportedly ranged from his letters with foreign leaders to potential nuclear secrets, Mr. Trump is accused of trying to steal America's history, apparently with forethought. When confronted, he repeatedly resisted returning that history to its rightful owners for future generations. Mr. Trump's situation was always going to be a case that centered on so-called prosecutorial discretion, that is, the careful weighing of how investigators have handled defendants in similar cases, whether there's evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that a crime occurred, and whether justice is served by seeking criminal charges. Mr. Petraeus's case, for instance, was a major factor in the decision not to charge Ms. Clinton in 2016. Mr. Trump's case isn't just about classified material. At its core, it's about who controls America's history. Now let's return to local news from The Courier. Minority students offered Leader Valley Scholarship, filed by Courier staff. Dateline Cedar Falls. Applications will be available this spring for a new leadership and legacy scholarship that benefits minority high school students who plan to attend college. CBE Company's owner and chairman, Tom Penaluna, and his wife, Ginger, are sponsoring the annual opportunity as well as leadership training. There's a special emphasis on any student who's attending a school with the Leader in Me initiative through Leader Valley, a nonprofit preparing students in the Cedar Valley for life and as future members of the workforce. Students qualify 
if entering their freshman year of college in the fall, and, if chosen, will be given up to $2,500 a year for four years. Additionally, the scholarship will provide students with access to summer leadership seminars. Leader Valley's Leader in Me initiative prepares students with employability and leadership skills, regardless of their race, religion, or socioeconomic backgrounds, said Penaluna. Ginger and I hope this scholarship fund will help create a better environment for those disadvantaged minority students after they graduate to come back to the Cedar Valley and help our community become more inclusive, which will open doors to new thinking and enriching lives. Madeline Ridgway, CBE's Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging, indicated it will level the playing field and give our emerging leaders needed support and encouragement as they begin their college and professional careers. In 2020, the Waterloo-Cedar Falls metro area was named the worst place in the country for African Americans to live by the website 24-7 Wall Street. Penaluna has played a key role in the last decade in growing Leader Valley and received the program's Legacy Award earlier this month. The scholarship furthers his ongoing commitment to providing diverse and inclusive opportunities to traditionally underserved groups with a focus on Cedar Valley's African-American community. CBE Companies is a national service provider specializing in innovative accounts receivable management and call center solutions. For more information, go online to www.bit.ly slash leadership legacy scholarships. Now, library announces upcoming events. Waterloo. The following upcoming events are planned at the Waterloo Public Library on Monday from 6 to 8 p.m., Hive Workshop, Knitting and Crocheting Drop-In for Adults in the Hive Main Room. There won't be any formal instruction or specific projects to work on, but a volunteer will be on hand to help with questions. And on Monday, from 6.30 to 7 o'clock p.m., Evening Story Time, a family event held on the fourth Monday evening of the month in Storytime Corner. On Tuesday, 5.30 to 7.30 p.m., Board Game Night for Teens and Adults in Meeting Room A.B. People can bring games or play those at the library. There is also a growing list of games for patrons to check out. On Tuesday, from 6 to 7 p.m., Choose Your Own Adventure Read Aloud Book Club in the Conference Room. Fourth and fifth graders will hear a story and then choose which path to take along the way. To register, go online. After registration, participants will be sent more details regarding the club. The club will also meet on January 31st. Wednesday, from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m., the Altered Reality Book Club will meet at Single Speed Brewing, 325 Commercial Street in Waterloo, to discuss the book The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Suri. To participate, email Sarah at s-s-e-l-l-e-r-s at waterloopubliclibrary.org. She will send more details. A limited number of copies of the book will be available for checkout, but it also may be downloaded digitally 
from Hoopla.com, and on Wednesday from 6 to 7.30 p.m., Learning Spanish Basics with Claudia Matos at the Library Conference Room. During this eight-week class for adults and teenagers, Matos will teach important vocabulary, numbers, days of the week, anatomy, and more. The class is for English speakers learning Spanish, but all are welcome to attend. Registration is required. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 20th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. You can access a recording of today's reading from this or any of the other Iowa newspapers that we read on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <music>